Well, this morning we have a special guest, and uh, her name is Jean Tusky, and she's going to come uh, in just a minute. And uh, today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and so uh, she's going to come and share a little bit about Oxford Pregnancy Center, but also uh, tell us a little bit about what they do and how they minister to people in our community. They minister to men, women, and children, and uh, we're so thankful for what they're doing. And we have the opportunity to jump in and be a part of what they're doing and encourage and help uh, people that have needs in these areas. And so I'm going to have Jean come up and share some things from her heart and uh, about her ministry. So thank you very much for coming today. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. I am the executive director at Oxford Pregnancy Center, and I have been there for about a year and a half. Now, 37 years ago, uh, Darlene Hendricks, who was the former executive director and a group of women sat around a kitchen table and they were talking about what can we do for women who are experiencing a crisis pregnancy. It was after Roe v. Wade had started and they saw a need for these women. And so they started Oxford Pregnancy Center. It was called uh, Mother and Unborn Baby at one time, the, the name has evolved, but they've been there for almost 37 years. And so when I came to the center, I had come from 12 years of being a hospice nurse. And through a very interesting uh, set of events, I left hospice and I came to work there. But a lot of people, I was surprised to find out, didn't know what we do there. And our purpose is um, to love mothers and save babies. And that was one of the main uh, goals at that first meeting around the kitchen table, was to love mothers and to save babies. And so we are out often educating people on what we do. So we do not perform abortions, we do not refer for abortions, we do not provide an abortion pill. But what we do is we offer these mothers who are experiencing unwanted surprise pregnancies, crisis pregnancies, and a real option. And we provide them with all of their options. We have a discussion with them about all of their options. We will discuss whatever they want to talk about, but we give them the truth. We give them the full information. Uh, a lot of places, Planned Pregnancy or uh, Planned Parenthood, they uh, have one option. Usually that is abortion. But they don't fully explain uh, some of the risks in abortion, the risk of infertility, the risk of infection, uh, the psychological effects of abortion. And so we go through all of that with our moms. We um, offer them information on parenting, on adoption. on um, we, we educate them on both forms of abortion so that they are fully informed when they are making a decision. But what we want to offer them is hope. What if, what if you had uh, 
if you could remove these obstacles that are in front of you preventing you from wanting to have this child? What if you had financial support and material support? What if you could talk to your parents in a way that they would want to be supportive and understanding and help you? What if, um, you know, you could do this on your own if you had to? And we offer them a pregnancy test, a medical-grade pregnancy test, and we offer them the options discussion, and then we offer them an ultrasound. And they can see that heartbeat of that baby. And we offer the ultrasound for three reasons, to check the gestational age. Because they come in, they just think, I have to have an abortion. But maybe if uh, they're in the midst of a miscarriage, they would not need an abortion. Uh, Maybe if um, the pregnancy is outside of the uterus, that would be an ectopic pregnancy. They would not need an abortion. So it's very important to have that ultrasound. And then um, we look for gestational age. We look for the placement of the baby And we look for the viability. Because if they're in the midst of a miscarriage, then they would also not need an abortion. And that's something Planned Parenthood does not always offer. Um, They should. They're supposed to offer an ultrasound, but they don't always. And so um, with all of those things, we encourage women to, you know, with our support, to find a way to carry out their pregnancy. And once they decide to carry out their pregnancy, we offer many programs. We offer a mentoring program uh, for both moms and dads. Uh, We offer a mom support group. We uh, saw a need for post-abortive healing. And so now we have a program that helps moms who have already been through an abortion and are suffering the psychological effects of an abortion. Um, We have many programs where we provide material aid, uh, anything that they need to uh, take care of their baby. We offer diapers and wipes and clothing. Um, We offer, uh, gosh, just, you know, uh, formula and food and everything that you would need. And so all of these things, all of our programs, all of the things that um, the material aid that we offer comes through the generosity of our donors. Uh, We do not receive any governmental monies. Planned Parenthood gets millions and millions of dollars uh, through the government for their programs. We get no governmental assistance, but I'll tell you, we're happy not to have it. In this culture, you know, we wouldn't want the strings that are attached with uh, the governmental assistance. And so we depend on our, our donors, and then we depend on our volunteers. And we are primarily run by volunteers. So the baby bottle campaign today, um, if you would, if, if you would like to take a baby bottle, you, we just ask that you fill it with your loose spare change and then return it here to the church and we'll pick it up. And that money goes directly into all of our programs. Um, 
we we appreciate the generosity of our volunteers, our donors so much. If you are interested in becoming a volunteer with us, I you can see me afterward in the lobby. I have a lot of brochures. I have volunteer pamphlets for you to look at. Um, I would love to meet with you. I would love for any of you to come to our center. We would be happy to give you a tour, show you, you know, what we're doing there. We're very happy and proud of our center. And if um, you would feel so moved, if you want to volunteer, that would be great. I'll set up an interview, and I can give you all of the options that we have. The most important thing that you can do for us is to pray for us. Every single person that comes to our center, whether they're a volunteer or a mom, uh, we even get young men who come to us. Uh, this summer we had two men, young men come in, and they just wanted to be educated on, on sexuality. And we did that for them. But, but they come to us because God brings them to us. Every single person, every single person has a story, but we face spiritual warfare. The thing that sustains us is that we know who wins, and we that encourages us and that gives us the will to keep fighting for that unborn baby. So please pray for us. I thank you for the time uh, that you've given me this morning, and I would love to talk to any of you afterward. Thank you. Jean, thank you very much for coming. And she gave a few opportunities to get involved. Um, one of them is donating your time and your talents to help them out. Another thing is to get involved in the baby bottle drive. I did go on their website. Uh, if you want to give more than just pennies, you can go to their website and donate money uh, right there. And I believe Melissa maybe has set up a QR code or something for us to be able to scan and you can donate um, that way. But if you go to their website, you can put in um, like the church's name and stuff like that, and you can give uh, that way. So they would really benefit uh, from you jumping in and being a part of this. It would be a blessing to them as they are a blessing to other people right in our very own community. If you have your Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn to James chapter 1 <clears throat> this morning. James chapter 1, we are going to be looking at uh, this passage of Scripture and we're going to look specifically at verses 1 to 4. And uh, just wanted to mention quickly as you're turning there that um, next Sunday is Discover Oakwood. And if you're newer here and you want to learn more about um, Oakwood Community Church, we really encourage you uh, to be a part of that. I'm actually going to be a part of that myself as uh, I think this is my eighth uh, Sunday here um, at Oakwood. So it's great to be a part of the church family and uh, looking forward to getting to know more uh, about Oakwood this next coming Sunday. So if you want to be a part of that, contact the office, or uh, some of you received emails uh, this last week. You can just click on that link, uh, sign up that way. That way we know how much child care and how much food uh, to have. So I want to make sure we don't run out of food, because I'll be there. <laughs> so make sure you, uh, make sure you sign up. Uh, so we're looking at James chapter 1. Let's go ahead and read this passage it says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersions greetings. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produced steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray together. Dear Father, as we come to you this morning, we desire to hear from your word. And we ask, Father, that our hearts and ears and minds would be open to what you have for us today. Father, there's very many, lots of valleys that are in our lives oftentimes, and we don't know what to do with them. This passage clearly lays those things out and help us, Father, to understand what this passage is saying and, and what this author is saying to us today. Father, may it speak to our hearts and challenge our hearts and our minds and our thinking. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you like to eat lemons for a snack? Anybody? No one? Oh, one person. One person likes to eat lemons as a snack. I don't like lemons because they're sour. But when our kids were little, we would often give them a lemon just to watch their face. Like we were at a restaurant, we'd see a lemon and kind of give it to them and just kind of watch their face. I don't know, maybe that's child abuse. But it was kind of fun to see, uh, to see what would happen. You know, lemons suggest kind of difficulty in life or even sourness. But one of the things that I do like, I mean, I wouldn't say it's one of my favorite drinks, but I could have some lemonade. That'd be pretty good. Lemonade is kind of a sweet drink, but I don't like lemons, but I could, I could handle some lemonade. Lemonade or lemons can kind of be like a trial in your life. And sometimes you don't know what to do with those trials. This morning, I could have entitled the message, I entitled it, Living in the Valley, but I could have entitled it, How to Make Lemonade Out of Lemons. Because sometimes in our lives, there are times of struggle and trials. And this morning, I want to share with you a few of the trials that I've been through in my life, just to kind of set the pace for us this morning. Right around the year 2000, our oldest son, when he was three years old, we noticed in pictures that his eye was white. And my wife asked me, what do you think? Do you think we ought to have his eye checked out because of, you know, the way the, the, way the picture looked? Because one eye, you know, back in the old days would have like a red eye, and then his other eye was white. But come to find out what happened is when that lens would hit off of his eye, he had a tumor in there. And so back in 2000, we took our son to the ophthalmologist and found out that he had retinoblastoma. And we were like, what, what are we going to do with this? You know, here's this trial in our lives. It was a challenging time for us. It was our brand new baby boy, three years old, and he has a tumor in his eye. You know, all these questions come up. Is it in his brain? Has it, has it spread? How is this going to work? You know, but we kind of just walked through the process. And we have a 27-year-old boy now who has one eye, but doesn't really know 
any difference. He just has adapted to it because they had to remove his eye when he was three. Back in 2019, my dad passed away, and that was a hard time. It was a trial in my life. Another area of trial is just sometimes some physical issues that come up. Because I played so many sports when I was younger, just in the last few years, I've had four knee surgeries. I've had cancer on my face twice. One time it was 50 stitches, and I thought that was terrible. (laughs) Them trying to pull my face together. But just this last summer, I had cancer on my nose, and I had 25 stitches. And so just trials that come up in our lives, you understand because you have them too. One of the toughest trials that I faced was really just two months ago when my older sister, she was 51 years old, she passed away of colon cancer. It was a valley. It was a tough time. You understand, because you faced some of these things too. All of us face these things. They're like lemons in our lives. They're trials. They're valleys. Sometimes it's spiritual battles. It might be that sin that just grips you day in and day out, and you want victory. Like, Lord, I don't want to do this sin anymore. Can you... Help me. I, I want to surrender this to you and I want to give it to you, but it's something that you just struggle with. See, these trials, these valleys come in many different packages. Sometimes they come through work. Sometimes it's school. Sometimes it's right in our family or maybe even the church or neighbors, friends, It could even be physical ailments, financial setbacks, even the cars we drive and the houses we live in. You know, just last week I was cruising up M24 and all of a sudden on my dashboard I see low tire sensor and it just keeps going down and down and down. And here I am on the side of the road with the flat tire. And I'm like, Lord, I don't need this right now. What are you trying to teach me? I'm ready to listen. You know, in life, we can't avoid these things like pain, criticism, breakdowns, frustrations, disappointments, emotional pain, disease, injury, and eventually death. But the Bible promises us that in the valleys, he's there with us. The Bible even promises us sometimes We're going to have trouble when we even stand for Christ. When we live out our faith, sometimes trouble is going to come. These are just a few of the valleys in my life that I faced. I could give you more if time would allow for that. But we want to look and see specifically what the Word of God has to say about these difficulties that we face in our lives. Think about some of the Bible characters that though they faced difficult times, they turned defeat into victory. Think about Joseph and the situation that he went through 
and his brothers gave him away, and he was in slavery. But God allowed him later on in his life to use his leadership to provide food and supplies. And to the very family that betrayed him, he turned around and was giving to them. Think about the Apostle Paul as he was imprisoned, being being gracious to the very prison guards that are watching him. These Bible characters, instead of becoming victims, they decided to become victors. And that's what God wants us to do today. He wants us to rise up in the valleys of life that we face. My big idea today, I got to turn this thing on. My big idea today is you can rise up in the valley. Now briefly, what I want to do is I'm going to look at the opening introduction here in this passage and just kind of walk through this a little bit. What we see first is the author. It's believed that James was the half-brother of Jesus. He is the author of the book of James. In Acts chapter 15, we see that he is a Jewish religious leader that participated specifically in the Jewish council. Now, it is believed also that James was one of the very first New Testament books that were written. Now, in the Bible, it's more toward the back, but as far as like age, uh, it's, it's one of the the earliest books. James specifically, right in verse 1, he describes himself as a bondservant. It was a very simple introduction, and that's what he wanted people to know about him. Now, he could have said in the introduction, James, the half-brother of the famous man named Jesus. But instead, what he did in this passage is he recognized Jesus as the Lord, emphasizing his deity and his belief specifically in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the author. Let's look quickly at the audience. The audience here in this passage, it says in verse 1, is the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. These were Jewish believers that were specifically dispersed from their homeland. Now, what do we know about this? The book is known as an epistle But it doesn't really mention any specific people, but rather a group, this 12 tribes. Um, The book doesn't really have a closing section of the book. It just kind of is practical, uh, kind of almost like a sermon that's addressing many different life issues. It's kind of really known as a book that is kind of like in your face. It's just direct. It's to the point. And it really addresses a lot of different issues that we deal with in life. Did you know in the book of James that it has 54 imperatives? So there's 54 commands in 108 verses. So that's almost one average, an average of one call to action almost in every verse. James' style is energetic. It is vivid. It, it contains some profound concepts but with well crisp or crisp and well chosen words. The sentences are short, they're simple, and they're direct. He uses a lot of metaphors and similes with a little bit of poetic imagination. James uses figures of speech, 
analogies, imagery from nature, as well as exhortations, rhetorical questions, and illustrations from everyday life that give a little bit of spice to this five-chapter book. What James really is encouraging believers to do here is to direct us toward holiness, encouraging us to grow in our faith. He deals with a lot of areas of the Christian life, and really what he's doing is he's giving wisdom for everyday life. If you need wisdom, read the book of James. It's kind of parallel to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs has 31 chapters just of wisdom and everyday um, you know, life situations. And James is very similar, just in a New Testament approach. So that's kind of just a brief introduction of the book of James. So let's dive in. We're going to look at verses 2 to 4 here. Look at the proper response to these trials, to these valleys, to these lemon-type situations. Now, I'll be the first one to say there are a lot of responses to troubles. You see it every day. You watch people. You're going to see how they respond. The commentator J.R. Blue, he says, all too often trials prompt groanings and complaining. The kind of response does not contribute to Christian maturity. It only makes matters worse. Trials are not to be seen as tribulations, but testings. A test is given to see if a student can pass, not pass out. Though, when I was a student, I'm like, I think I'm going to pass out. Um, One who brings the right attitude to the trial, who understands the advantage of the trial, and who knows where to obtain assistance, assistance to the trial will certainly end up in the right place. So, we want to look at, briefly, what is the proper response to trials? It all comes down to having a proper attitude. This book, in verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers. So this passage is specifically written to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. These believers, specifically the 12 tribes that have been scattered, had experienced trials, and were still in the middle of this trial. They were surrounded by many pagan people that also could influence them to respond incorrectly to the trial. We have to be careful who we hang out with. We have to be careful who's influencing us, because oftentimes that could affect our attitude or even our heart in these situations. Now, it's interesting here that James tells us in trials to count it all joy. What? When you're in a trial and you're sitting on the side of the road with the flat tire, you're supposed to be like, yay, Lord, I'm so excited. I just can't wait. What do you have for me today? I No. When I was on the side of the road... I didn't, I mean, that quite wasn't my attitude, but it was kind of like, okay, well, I had different plans, but here we go. It's kind of, it's kind of cold out and where's my flat tire? And I was in the middle of moving. So I had a lot of stuff in the back of my bed where the, the 
uh, the jack was and the spare tire was underneath and I had a lot of stuff in the back of the truck and I was kind of like, well, it's going to be really hard to even get to that stuff. So I started thinking about all of that stuff and the trial just started compounding. But here this passage says that we're to count it all joy. James uses this. This is one of his commands and the word count is the Greek word that primarily it means to lead the way. Hence, the idea is to lead before the mind or to take account. A commentator named Hebert, he says that this word means to consider, to deem, to regard as, and calls for a mental evaluation adopted as the result of due deliberation. He says the attitude. It's also known as a financial term, the word count, and it means to evaluate, to consider, Some translations um, translate this word, consider. But what we have going on here, the command suggests the need for a definitive decision to take up a joyful attitude. So when you come to a trial, you've got to count it as joy. So what you're going to do in your mind is like, okay, here we are. Lord, this is a trial. I'm going to have a good attitude about this. I'm going to make a deliberate decision to say, hey, this is joyful. Lord, I don't know what you have for me today, but I am going to think this as only joy. I'm going to think this as nothing but joy. I'm going to be supremely happy about this. What's remarkable about this command is that it applies to a situation in which a joyful reaction would not typically be the situation. It's totally unnatural. It's only a believer that could really take a trial like this and say, Lord, I'm going to have an attitude of joy in this situation. It kind of reminds me, you know, today is Sainted of Human Life Sunday, but after a mom has had a baby and all of that pain and delivery, that they would decide to have another baby. I don't understand it. I mean, I, I, I really don't. I don't know that I ever will. But it's a joyful situation, and mothers, as they hold that baby, count it as joy. So this morning, what I want us to do is to rise up in the valley. Let's talk a little bit about the definition of joy. The definition of joy means delight or supreme happiness. Warren Wearsby said, if we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. Read that again. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value physical more than spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we only live for the present and forget about the future, you know what trials will do? They're actually going to make us bitter, not better. If we only live for the present 
and forget about the future, then trials will make us bitter, not better. The ultimate growth through these trials can cause us to grow spiritually and learning that the trials that we go through, ultimately, as we learn, then we can also help other people along the way as we learn. This passage tells us also that we must expect trials. It's kind of implied in there in verse 2. So don't be shocked when you face a trial. They're coming. We can't get out of them. I wish there was a box like this that says yes, no, or maybe. Like, uh, if it's okay, I, I might go through this one. If I can choose this one rather than that one over there, then I would be better off. But we don't really have an option. Um, the only way through a trial, the only way out of it is actually through it. I'm not trying to be a bearer of bad news or anything. It even makes me nervous to talk about this. But it's what the passage says. And I ask myself, what's coming for me? Why does this happen? Because we lived in a sin-cursed world. And things happen because of the fall and sinfulness. Things break. Things wear out. But through all of this, these valley, these lemon-type scenarios... We can glorify a holy, sovereign God right in the midst of a valley. As people look at you in the valley, they're like, how can that person be like that? It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells you. I want to walk through just quickly uh, and kind of just explain the whole uh, temptations, trials, and tests that are in, in this passage. Some trials we have are because we're just human, like sinfulness or uh, sick, sicknesses, accidents, disappointments, even tragedies. Even my sister's death, I mean, it was something that she'd been dealing with since she was six years old. It was something that she kind of was just born with and ultimately caught up with her when she was 51. Some of these trials happen because we're believers. The Bible says if we follow after Christ and if we stand for him as a believer, you're going to have trials. Satan is fighting against us. The enemy wants to seek and devour whom he can destroy The world opposes the truth of the gospel and the word of God. And so this makes just a lifetime of of battle as a believer. In 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12, it says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. These things are going to happen. The word that's translated here, trial, has two basic meanings in the New Testament. It can refer to the inner enticement of sin, and it can also um, has the idea of afflictions, external afflictions, particularly persecution. In several verses, it's possible that both meanings could be included uh, of this, this idea. But what we see in this passage, because of the word various, 
um, various trials, we should think of this as both the difficulties that are common to people and also the specific adversaries that Christians must face because of our faith. And um, we see, even throughout the scriptures, we see like illness mentioned in chapter 5, verse 14. We see even financial difficulties in chapter 1, verse 9. We see social and economic persecution in chapter 2, verse 6. And all of these ideas could be included in this idea of the various trials that we could face. So whatever these trials are, one of the most important things that I've already mentioned for a believer is that we consider these as joy. John MacArthur says, a trial is something that breaks the pattern of peace, comfort, joy, and happiness in, some, in someone's life, but every trial becomes a test that is designed to strengthen your faith. So I want to stop here and I want to ask you a question. When trials come in your life, how are you responding to these trials? Even this next week, as things arise, as your kids don't do what you ask them to do, and it becomes this big ordeal, ask yourself the question, how am I responding in the midst of this trial? Are you deliberately counting it as joy? This passage tells us that we're going to face a variety of trials. A variety of trials, that means they won't always be the same. We're going to face different things. The 12 tribes in this passage knew what it was to face trials. They had been persecuted. They had been driven out of their own country. So what kind of trials and tests have you faced or are facing? When we face these trials, we need to have an attitude of joy. Now, I keep emphasizing attitude because we're not talking about feelings here. Because you know what our feelings may want to do? Not rejoice. This is an inner attitude. This is a choice to say, in this situation, I will count it as joy. Have you ever looked at the underside of a rug? One of those that are maybe kind of shaggy and obscure. Maybe the yarns are kind of hanging, the yarns are kind of dangling underneath. If you were to judge the worker that made that rug, by the underside of that rug, you would say, man, this rug, it looks terrible. But as you turn it over and you look at the other side of the rug, you see, oh, wow, this rug is beautiful. Sometimes in trials, we're looking at the wrong side of the trial. Sometimes we don't see what the finished product is. Sometimes we don't see how God is going to use us through this. And this morning, if you don't get anything, get this. In the midst of trials, you can rise up in the valley. Let's look at our last point here, the proper results of trials. In verse 3, it uses a word 
in my translation, I'm using the ESV. It says, for you know. We must have an understanding mind based on this word knowing to help us understand why we face trials. Oftentimes, that's the question. Why, Lord? Why? Why? But this passage tells us one of the reasons why we have trials is to produce patience. In verse 3, it tells us that our faith will be tested. We will face tests throughout our lives. And so we must not dwell on that, but dwell on the fact of what we can learn from this. So the first thing we have to do, and I've mentioned this briefly, is to have the right attitude. So in the midst of these trials, is our attitude selfish? That oftentimes can lead toward anger or bitterness or why is this happening to me? Is our attitude self-serving? Is it complaining? Is it bitterness, anger, frustration? The true attitude usually comes out when we're facing our toughest times. If I had a bowl bowl this morning of blue Kool-Aid and I took a towel and I dipped it in there, what color would the Kool-Aid be when I would wring it out? It'd be red, right? No, it'd be blue. Because whatever you put in a life will ultimately come out. It's just like when you have a towel and you put blue Kool-Aid in it, you wring it out, that's what comes out. The same thing happens with us. Whatever we put in, Oftentimes, when we're facing the hardest times, these valleys, trials, these lemon-type situations, that's what comes out. So what are you feeding yourself spiritually in preparation for these valley-type situations? It helps. The Bible tells us that whatever we put in our hearts and minds, that's what's going to come out. In verse 3 to 4, it basically tells us, that our faith will grow when we're tested. It should produce endurance. In the ESV, it uses the word steadfastness. So it should be productive. It doesn't say in this passage that these trials should produce anger or suicidal thoughts or evil thoughts, even about the person who may be wronged you. If we have the right attitude in our faith, it will produce endurance, patience. Listen to this passage in Romans chapter 5. It says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. What does the word endurance mean? It means the ability to hang in there when the tough gets going. It's a courageous perseverance in the face of suffering and difficulty. This is a permanent quality of strength. It increases each time that you're faced with trials and you're patient and you're trusting in God, it gives you staying power. It gives you fortitude. 
like a boxer that just is standing there, just boom, taking it, boom. And you're like, how in the world is he still standing? It's that endurance. He's able to keep fighting because he's worked hard in the gym when it's been hot and he's prepared himself physically for these situations. And I want to challenge us this morning that we would prepare ourselves spiritually for these situations. If you're weak, when you face these trials, you're going to respond incorrectly. If you're strong and you've built your spiritual strength and muscles up, when, the, when these trials and situations come, you have the opportunity to say, Lord, I'm joyful in these situations. I want to please you. So what kind of tests are you facing today? I mean, we could name a lot of them. But in the outcome of these trials, are you pleasing God or pleasing yourself? Let's look at just the last point here in verse 3 to 4. In verse 3 or 4, it says, But you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Some of you husbands might be like, yes, that's the verse for me. I could finally please my wife. I could be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. I'll be the greatest husband there ever was. Well, maybe not. It says here in verse 4 that our faith will be matured. This, re- this forces you to rely on God instead of your own resources. The word perfect here is not talking about being perfect. It would be nice. Someday in heaven, we'll be perfect. But what this idea here is, as these trials come into your life, it allows you to grow in spiritual maturity. You, you keep growing as you respond right. It's talking about a person that has reached its end, finished, complete, allowing God to work in their lives, to have the attitude of saying, God, what are you trying to teach me? I'm willing to listen. The second word here is the word entire. The word means complete and sound in every part. And the last word, the last phrase, lacking in nothing, carries the idea, the end result of trials, maturity, completeness, completeness, not lacking anything, spiritual importance on value. So this morning, what trials are you facing? What lemon situations have you been going through? You know, as I've been here over the last few weeks, I've enjoyed getting to meet you and to hear some of your stories and just kind of hear how God has used situations that are like valley situations to draw you further to Christ. Oftentimes he uses hard times to say, okay, Lord, I submit, I surrender to you. I'm willing to listen to what you have for me. So this morning, what is God teaching you in the midst of the valley? 
What does he have for you? I'm going to have the music team come up, and I want to pray together. Dear Father, I just thank you for your word. Father, help us in these situations to have the attitude of, Lord, I need you. Lord, I'm so thankful for you. Lord, I count it all joy. And help me in these situations to rise above, to turn our hearts and minds and our focus toward you in your word, in the Spirit's guidance. In Jesus' name, amen.